you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking again at James chapter 5. If uh, you have a, a child third grade and under and you haven't dismissed them yet, uh, we do have a teaching time for them uh, apart from what we're doing in here. But we are, we are getting close to the end of this series, Living Up to Your Faith, the message of James. And this is the last time I'm going to sort of go through just some things we missed uh, the last time in James 5, verses 1 through 12. And then I'm only seeing a finish line at the end. But as you know, sometimes those, that last lap is a little hard to get through. So we'll, we'll see what happens then. But it's, it's been a wonderful time just immersing this year uh, in this wonderful little letter. And we're in a unique portion of the letter right now because James is announcing the coming judgment of, of the Lord upon the enemies of God, the enemies of the people of God. And James, remember, as we saw last week, writes like one of the fiery Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, uh, writing about the Lord's return. And he's warning those who are going to experience God's judgment that this judgment is coming. It, he sounds like Revelation 19, when the Lord comes to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. So reading again the beginning of this text, he says in verse 1, Come now, you rich, which we saw means you wicked rich. It's not their wealth that's the issue. It's how they acquire it and how they're using it. Come now, you wicked rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, some of those who are receiving this letter from James, they're believers, which you have kept back by fraud and are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So certain is their doom here. James speaks as if it's already here, as if the Lord of hosts is returning today to settle this score. So their gold and silver and fine garments have come to nothing. They've fattened themselves like you would ex expect the, rich, the wicked rich to do, but really they're fattening themselves for the kill with all of the wealth that they have wrongfully acquired. They thought they're hoarding riches, but as Paul says in Romans 2, they're storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. But James' primary reason for writing these words is not for the wicked landowners who will be judged. They're not the ones who are reading these words, not unless you expect them to get the letter also and, and read it. James is writing this letter to believers in Jesus Christ, some of whom were the very servants that James is speaking of here, that the wicked rich are oppressing, holding back wages from, who some of them have been allowed to starve. Here are the people that James is writing to. And James wants these suffering believers to read these words and to be encouraged that the end of their suffering and the judgment of those oppressing them is near at hand. 
these believers who were scattered abroad, as James says in the opening of the letter in, in, in verse 1, who were forced to flee because of intense persecution in and around Jerusalem after Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned. Remember, after they executed Stephen, the Jewish Sanhedrin, in Acts 8, it talks about this at the very beginning of the chapter. They, they, they organized a campaign to find the rest of the Christians and jail them and beat them and even have some of them executed. Saul of Tarsus himself, as you know, in Acts 8.3, went systematically from house to house, and it says, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. In, in the words of his own testimony in Acts 26.10, it says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, Paul says. If you're a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ in that day, and this kind of mass extermination is taking place, especially if you have a wife, you have children, you are going to flee in the night and find someplace else to live far away from this place. So many of the believers who received a copy of James's letter had already known what it was like to be terrorized, to be targeted, to have their lives up in upheaval and breaking ties with family and friends and wandering, looking for a place to live because they loved Jesus Christ and they were going to stand for him and, and continue to witness for him. And in order to survive, they had to hire themselves out to rich landowners like those whom James is speaking of here in verses 1 through 6, who turned out to be terrible people to work for. So James wants them to be encouraged and emboldened and filled with hope but after he cries out, as it were, against these who are persecuting God's people, James admonishes them in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, that time when the Lord returns and sets into motion the judgment of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous. Be patient until that day. Endure, persevere, don't be weary in doing what is right. Don't give up on the Lord as if he's not returning. Trust the Lord to sustain you. Be faithful to him. Work and pray and encourage one another and share your faith. Do this until the coming of the Lord. You look at that word until. It marks the division in the grammar between the days leading up to the end, that's where we are right now, and the end itself. We're living in the days before the until. And after the until, all that the Lord has promised his people will begin to dramatically unfold. The earth will be judged and we who know the Lord will be with him forever, gloriously transformed, living in endless, unimaginable happiness and fulfillment on the new earth where everyone else knows the Lord. That's the end game. That's where we're all headed. And, and, and sometimes people have different eschatological systems, but everybody agrees that's the end. That's where it finally comes to a climax. That's what's on the other side of the word until. And in the meantime, James says to be patient, to endure, to be steadfast. So we're living in a time right now, you and I, where it is leading up to the final event. You, you know, time is a, a pretty remarkable thing. And there's more than one way to think about time. First, there is 
time that you can measure mechanically or systematically. The Greeks referred to this measurable time as chronos. Chronos is time that you can mark. And they would mark the time in various ways. The time the sun rises, the time the sun sets. You read in the Bible of people marking the time by the third hour of the day, right? The sixth hour, the ninth hour of the day. You see that language in there? Because they don't have clocks like we do today. They're marking time, though, every single day. There was a rhythm in the Jewish calendar, in the Jewish weeks and days, the morning and afternoon and evening prayers, and uh, the rhythm of the Sabbath uh, from one week to the next. Today, we mark chronos time with our clocks. In fact, we have you know, these atomic clocks. We've got you know, ex- precise time, and everybody has the same time on their, on their devices. And we can know the exact time in every si- uh, time zone. We can, we can count down the minutes. Several times a week at BJU Seminary, I am standing in a classroom, and outside the hall, a bell rings to mark the top of the hour. That's the beginning of the class time. And 50 minutes later, another bell rings, marking 10 minutes till the hour, the time the class is supposed to end. By the way, in graduate school, there should never be bells. That's just a pet peeve of mine uh, that is so undergraduate and high schoolish. But anyway, I don't have time to get off on that this morning. But the class starts at the top of the hour, and the minute hand on the clock advances one notch, every 60 seconds and ends 50 minutes later. And while I'm teaching, I want to see sometimes how much time I have left and I just look up at the clock and I mark that. That's chronos, the exact measurement of time. However, however, how the students perceive the time we are spending in the classroom is not chronos. That's another Greek word that the Greeks used for time called kairos. Kairos is another way of looking at time. Kairos is not the measure of time, it's the quality of time. So here's a student who's totally into the discussion in the classroom, eager to learn, engaged, and for him, he's just having this this great time in the class. And, And likely when that obnoxious bell rings to mark the end of 50 minutes of class time, the student is thinking, wow, where did the time go? It's, it's already time to leave class. I mean, I always feel that way as the teacher, okay? But here, here's another student who is bored with the subject, does not find the discussion engaging. This is totally hypothetical, by the way. This never happens. Uh, and, and, and may, but may, maybe it's his last class of the week. It's Friday afternoon, and he's even going on a vacation uh, after that to, to visit his uh, fiance and parents in another, and their, her parents in another state or something like that. He's something to look forward to. And, and so for him, that, that same student can be sitting in the same class in that same 50 minutes, and the time is just crawling by. And you can all relate to what I'm talking about. That's kairos. That's quality of time. 30 minutes playing basketball or watching a movie with friends is a very different thing than 30 minutes standing in line at the DMV or waiting to be wheeled in for your surgery. The difference is in how those 30 minutes are perceived. So here we are living in the days before the Lord's return. You realize there's nothing else that has to happen historically or theologically in order for Christ to return for us. In fact, because the Bible says that during the tribulation period, the Antichrist will broker a peace agreement with Israel, anytime Israel goes to war, I start paying very close attention to what's happening in the Middle East. How do we perceive time, this time we're living in? What's your kairos? 
Do you have a sense of the certain and soon return? Does it factor into how you look at your life? Does it color and control and regulate how you live? You remember how we all felt when COVID hit? There was this feeling that something bigger was at play because the, the whole world came to a practical standstill and it felt so weird. In fact, everybody kept using the word surreal. Do you remember that? If that word wasn't readily in your vocabulary, it was after we started COVID. It was, it was as if we were suddenly going through some time in some other world, detached from life as we knew it. And one of the biggest reasons was that we could no longer count on the fact that our lives would be the same tomorrow as they were today. And that feeling we got about the time we were living through, that's what kairos is. It's, it's the quality of time we're, we're, we're feeling. I'm not telling you that you should think of the possibility of the Lord's coming in the same way that you used to worry about the possibility of contracting COVID. But I'm saying that we should be living with the sense of expectancy like something life-altering is about to happen. Because we don't know whether he will come today or tomorrow or the next day. And this reality ought to be in our thinking. That's what the New Testament keeps pushing us toward. And that's why James tells them, be patient, endure. You can't be patient about something if you're not thinking about that thing. He's not just saying, hold on until you die. Although people may go to be with the Lord before he comes. That's always happened in Christian history. But he is saying, be faithful as you await the imminent, certain, soon return of the Lord. Because in terms of human history, there's nothing left to happen before the end is set in motion, beginning with the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we said in the prior times we looked at this text, there are four aspects of the patience that James draws our attention to that teaches us what it means to await for the Lord patiently. I'm going to do a quick review of what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, and then we'll look at that one last aspect that we haven't covered yet as we prepare our minds for gathering this morning around the Lord's table. The first one I referred to as patience in eschatological context. And this refers to the vindication of the suffering believer that we just read about in verses 1 and 2. We may not suffer as much today as believers. Some here have had that experience, but most of us in, in modern America have not. We haven't suffered perhaps as these believers are described here, but as we faithfully live for the Lord and not for ourselves, there ought to be a growing sense of alienation from this world, a sense of its rejection of our Lord and therefore an ultimate rejection of us, a pushing away of the world. And at the same time, a drawing toward the presence of the Lord as we grow to love Him and long to be with Him. And as I said last week, if we're painfully honest, you and I may not yet feel the longing as keenly as the New Testament speaks of. But we can obey what the Scripture tells us to do. And with a longing to obey the Lord will also come a longing to be with the Lord. The next aspects of patience then contain acts of obedience that we must observe if we are waiting for his coming. So we find here the aspect of patience in divine illustration, by which I mean simply that the Lord himself gives us this illustration of the farmer to help us appreciate the attitude we should have while we're patiently waiting for the Lord. So James says, starting in the middle of verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it, that's the fruit, the, the, the seeds he's planted and the seedlings, 
receives the early and late rains. The, the farmer is not sitting around hoping his co- crops come in. He's working diligently, toiling, sweating, wearing himself down in hope of the life-giving rains that will bring the harvest. James says, this is how we must also live. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And and the key word in that whole section is this idea of establishing your heart. It's a determination to follow the Lord no matter what as you wait for his appearing. But then James moves to a third aspect of patience that goes even further. Patience in godly example brings up the prophets and Job, of whom they were not perfect examples of unfaltering patience, as I mentioned last week. Yet in the long direction of their lives, they stayed the course. They clung to the Lord, even when it was hard. And they continued to obey. So James says, as an example of suffering and patience, he's pairing those two here. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. The idea James introduces here is steadfastness in times of suffering, in times of pressure. Because we can all obey for a little while. You know, it's like a wife and a husband comes home and says, hey, I did the dishes, you know? And she's thinking, what am I supposed to do? Like have to throw a party, you know? That you, you, you did the thing I do every single day of my life once. That's not how she responds. I'm sure she's very thankful and all of that. Um, but, you know, sometimes we guys feel like, you know, we've done something if we do, do it one time. Anybody can do it one time. But you try to be somebody who does a, a, a particular task every single day faithfully. That's a different thing. That, that's doing it under pressure. That's what he's talking about here. To obey long-term faithfulness under pressure. This goes beyond what he said simply about steadfastness. It's continuing steadfastness. That's why he says we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. We also see that steadfastness, that steadfast endurance isn't about us. The Lord himself strengthens and encourages us as we follow him. That's why James says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. At the end of the day, we still rely on his strength to stay steadfast and to do it even under pressure. Now, before we go to the table, there's one more very practical aspect of patience that we have to consider. James says, that we must patiently wait for his coming with a growing expectation, a surreal expectation of the impending climax of our salvation. And then we must do so while fixing our hearts steadfastly to follow Christ and continue to follow him even under pressure while relying on his compassion and mercy. That really summarizes everything he said that we looked at. But James, as we know by now, is not content to give us general charges to obedience. He admonishes us in this letter again and again with very practical, measurable ways to live out these truths. That's why the fourth aspect is patience in practical living, which we see in verse 9 and verse 12. If we are waiting patiently for the Lord, then we ought to see in our lives evidence of patient virtues or obedient qualities of patience. One of these qualities appears in the middle of the exhortation to be steadfast 
and the other appears at the end of this exhortation. So here's the first in verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I might have probably read that so that you may not be judged. Because remember, he's already coming to judge. And you might wonder, why does this admonition appear right in the middle of the exhortation to be patient as we long for the Lord's coming. If you, if you have your Bibles open there, you notice that it comes between the illustration of the farmer and the examples of the prophets in Job. I mean, of all the practical applications, why does James bring up this right in the middle, sandwiched in to this text? But James is saying that a genuine test of our patience for the Lord's return is our patience with one another who are also waiting for the Lord to return. To grumble against one another is, 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 is actually a, a, an intense word in the Greek text. It's, it's translated in other contexts as groaning or grief or anger. In fact, two times in Paul's letters, once in Romans 8 and another in 2 Corinthians 5, you probably are familiar with these passages, Paul uses this word to express our groaning in this life as we await the blessings in the next, the redemption of the body. So this word groaning appears in an eschatological context in more than one place in the New Testament. James is telling us here, though, make sure that your groaning is not against one another, that we are not critical and harsh and short and unloving toward one another. How many times in this letter have we seen these kinds of exhortations from James, right? To be kind to one another, love one another, to bless and not curse, to be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, not to fight and to quarrel. This isn't the first time he's brought this up, but he puts it here. Because when are we the most tempted to be critical and harsh with one another? Isn't it when we're under pressure? I mean, if we're having a relaxed day and everything's good and some little irritation comes up, we're like, ah, you know, I got this. And we're proud of ourselves, you know, that we handle it with such patience or whatever. But if we've got a deadline to meet or we're trying, somebody needs something from us or we feel guilty about something, we're rushing and this little irritation comes up, we lash out. That's our, that's our tendency. This, 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 this kind of pressure is sort of pushes us over the edge. So one of the ways to discern in our spirit we are, whether we are truly living in hope of the Lord's coming and we're patiently waiting for him with steadfast anticipation, even in times of suffering, is if we have love for and patience with one another. And I think it should remind us of the admonition in Hebrews chapter 10, where, where the writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the habit, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as the coming of the Lord gets closer, we shouldn't slacken in our love and service to one another in the body of Christ. The Lord doesn't want us to just cloister ourselves away and merely hunker down as we wait for the beginning of the end. He wants us to encourage one another, to love one another, to meet each other's needs. All the more because we have this impending idea in our minds, the Lord could be returning for us even today. But James also says something that may startle us at first. He says that we should not grumble against one another so that we may not be judged. 
In verses 1 through 6, James encourages the oppressed believers by reminding them prophetically that the Lord certainly is coming to judge the wicked. But three verses later, he's warning them of the Lord's judgments. In fact, he says the judge, which, which must be Jesus Christ in this context, the judge is standing at the door. Now, I know that feeling of the judge standing at the door. And I'll tell you why. It goes back to a week at camp one summer that I spent when I was in junior high. Some of you are from Michigan, so you know Camp Kobiak. That's where it was. Our counselor was this really big guy, you know, who would punish us if we got out of hand by making us do push-ups, you know, and sit with our back against the wall with no chair and all kinds of torturous things that he'd probably be arrested for today, honestly. Um, and, 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 and he would do this all the time, so we, we were... We were, we were kind of uh, scared of him, but lights out is the worst time because you're in junior high and that's the time where you like to goof off with your friends and, and talk and so forth. But he would say, lights out, no talking. And he'd go back into his room, which was right next to the, where, where our bunk area was, and, and he would get into his bunk. So we'd wait for a while and then we'd start whispering, you know, and the whispering would get louder and we'd start goofing off and, and things like that. And, and then uh, this, this big burly counselor guy, he knew we were goofing off and he would do something. He would, he would sneak out of his bunk in his room and he would stand in the doorway of our section of the cabin without moving. And we'd be whispering and doing things and then somebody would say, guys, guys. And we'd look over and there was this, in, in the darkness, you could see this ominous dark shadow you know, in the doorway, barely discernible. And he was not moving. And we would like, all sort of quiet down. And we never knew when he left. As far as we know, I, he might be standing there today for all I know, you know, <laughs> the way it's burned into my brain. But we never knew when he left. He was just, he was standing at the door. And, and that can be a very unnerving experience for somebody if you're in junior high. But James wants us to have a similar idea, I think, in our minds. He warns us to envision not that the Lord is coming from some far off place and, and he may get here anytime. He wants us to, to envision the Lord has already arrived and he is ready to enter. That puts it a little more close to home. That's how certain the New Testament wants us to think about the Lord's coming. How would we think about our lives every day? The quality of kairos. What would we experience if we were to picture the Lord, as James says here, not as being at some infinite distance away, yet someday coming, but as already have, having arrived. He's about to knock on the door. And of course, the Lord is not coming to judge us like the wicked. The Lord loves us, but we will be evaluated by him. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Romans, or, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. So as we yearn for the judgment of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous, we must also bear in mind that, the, that we, the righteous, must examine our own behavior so that we are ready to meet the Lord when he comes. Now, there's one final exhortation to patience in practical living that James gives us at the end of this passage, and I, I want to treat this just briefly before we observe the table. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. So you will not fall under condemnation. Now, there are a lot of question marks in the commentary literature 
as to why James throws this verse here. Verse 12. If it's supposed to stand alone, unattached to what James says in his letter. And we've seen that, especially in chapter 1, that, that James just sort of has these episodic kinds of uh, practical advice, and, and some of them don't seem really connected. If it's supposed to stand alone, it seems a little bit odd because it begins with the words, but above all, my brothers. And surely there are many things in this letter that James would say are more important than not making an oath or not taking an oath. So we can't imagine that this is the climax of everything James has been driving toward in the whole letter. But look at the fact that James says, we observe this teaching so that we may not fall under condemnation. I think that's very similar to the idea that the judge is standing at the door. And after this verse, James appears to move to an entirely new subject. So I think James is offering here another example of how we should live, especially in light of the Lord's coming. As a parting word on the Lord's coming, James says, here's something else really important to keep in mind. And James then reiterates here the teaching of Jesus that we happen to find in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. James, the brother of Jesus, is writing this letter. He wasn't a believer when, when Jesus was uh, on earth in his, his earthly ministry. He became a believer uh, after the resurrection. I, I should say Jesus had not ascended yet. But James became a believer during that time, not, not before the cross. And he, he probably had heard his brother preach and teach multiple occasions. And the larger context of Jesus' teaching, by the way, is this is how you need to live in light of the coming kingdom the Lord will establish. Jesus said that all the time. And, and in fact, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he even talks about his coming in a couple of different places, and he's saying, this is how you ought to believe as you look for his coming. So with that in mind, Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath. And, and that verb there, do not take an oath, is the same verb, do not swear. It's just translated differently. It's the same verb we see in James 5. Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. So James summarizes, do not take an oath either by heaven or earth or any other thing. And in Jesus' teaching here, he, uh, he, he tells us what some of those things are. And then Jesus summarizes, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, uh, we're not going to get into the whole discussion of oaths here, but it's important to realize that the Lord is not saying here you can never make a vow or ever take an oath, like such as in a legal proceeding, for instance. In fact, there were exhortations in the Old Testament about keeping the vow that you made. And Jesus even refers to one of them here at the beginning in verse 33. God himself in Hebrews 6 and 7 makes an oath. And we're grateful he does because he swears by himself concerning our salvation. But Jesus was denouncing the tradition of the religious hypocrites who would say that swearing by God's name is binding, 
But if you swear by the earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head, then you can sort of get out of that. It's like making a promise with your fingers crossed. And Jesus' entire point is simply, you say yes and you mean it. Or you say no and you mean it. Be a person of your word. Be sincere. Be who you say you are. Be transparent. You shouldn't even have to say, oh, I swear this is true. Or I swear I didn't do it. I swear I didn't say that. Just always tell the truth. Be for real. Jesus himself says that if you don't live that way, it comes to evil. And James says, going back to James 5.12 here, that you will fall under condemnation. So you are aware of the Lord's return. Think about it in your daily life. Think about it when you go to work. Think about it when you're at home. Think about it when you lie down at night. This is all going on in your thinking. It ought to have an impact in how you deal with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You show it in your patience and compassion and forbearance with them. And here, you also show it in the fact that you live sincerely among them. Not putting on a mask. Not pretending. Not feeling like you have to keep a certain image. Who are we trying to impress anyway? It's the Lord who is standing at the door and he is not fooled by any mask that we can put on. He knows exactly who we are. But when we behave impatiently, verse 9, or insincerely, verse 12, toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, it betrays the fact that we are not really living for our coming king or with his coming in mind, with our minds fixed steadfastly on obedience to him, even under pressure. Instead, we're living for ourselves. James says, no, brothers, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And as I said over the last couple of weeks, we who sometimes struggle with this idea because we don't feel the push away like brothers and sisters in other countries who really suffer persecution for Christ. And sometimes we don't, we don't feel the longing toward, the drawing toward, where we just, we just want to be with Christ right now, like Paul says in Philippians 1. We need to grow in these areas. We need to serve the Lord and obey Him consistently and allow the Spirit to work in our hearts and in our lives, this idea of our love for the Lord so that we long to be with Him. We ought to continue to feel this alienation, this push away from the world. And that is pleasing to the Lord. James would tell us, be patient under the coming of the Lord. This is what patience looks like. This is what loving the Lord looks like. This is what longing for the Lord looks like. And this is what it means to live up to our faith. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close.